The power of algorithms is not something that I thought a lot about as an architect. Welcome to the Future of Living podcast. I'm your host, Blake Miller. The data isn't that powerful taken as an individual, but as a community, when we blend all of our data, it becomes much more powerful. And I think there's something really poetic about that. My guest on this episode is Joe Calistra. If you're going to drive 25 minutes and commute every morning to uh, your house in a bedroom community, it's not going to be very sustainable. I'm excited to have Joe on the Future of Living podcast. He's an associate professor of architecture, design, and planning at my alma mater, the University of Kansas. In addition to his work with KU, he's the founder of InSitU Design, an international architecture and urban design firm. InSitU has won multiple awards and been published more times than I care to count. The firm is obsessed with finding new ways to use architecture as an instrument for transforming communities. As if that wasn't enough, Joe is uniquely interested in merging new technology into senior living communities, an area often ignored. I started our conversation by asking him to tell me more about how smart living technology is shaping the new senior living environment. Sure. Well, in practice, we were doing a number of senior living facilities and realizing that that demographic has a lot of nuances to it and a lot of demands. And we started looking at uh, the potential of bringing uh, technology to that demographic. Uh, it's great being in Kansas City because of Google Fiber and all the hype that that got in 2012. And so sort of trying to address the question of if you had unlimited bandwidth, what would you do with it? And I think that's a great question for architects mm. because I think the city would completely be organized differently if we yeah, organized it around data. Um, you know, I think that it's as impactful as water and electricity were 100 years ago. So the way we organize streets and neighborhoods, housing, uh, even bathrooms, is all being impacted by data. Interesting. So t talk to us a little bit, uh, specifically the project you guys uh, started working on about 18 months ago, right? Yeah, we have a, we have a prototype at KU uh, that we've built in a warehouse that is fitted with uh, really low-cost accelerometers, the kind that you'd find in your phone. Mm. And it's kind it's of... It's amazing, like, what the phones have done. Yeah, right. they've, they've just made all this other, like, kind of third-party technology that's come together. Right, yeah. right. And it's calibrated to pick up heel strike. Mm. So basically the vibrations in the floor as you walk across it. What we've learned, I, I don't know much about this as an architect, but working with the KU Med Center, we've learned that a lot of health markers can be analyzed through the heel strike patterns. Mm. So what's called gait analysis can tell you patterns about whether you might fall, whether you have dementia, diabetes, even Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Wow. Some of the research they're doing at the med center involves a really expensive human performance lab. The difference here is that it's not That's quite as- That's K-Med, right? Yeah. yeah. It's not quite as accurate, but it's at a fraction of the cost of this lab that we could put sensors in almost every apartment for, we're hoping, less than $600. That would allow- Per door. Your, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what that would allow you to do then in, uh, uh, is remotely monitor uh, a resident who may have some issues falling or limping, mm. but more importantly, the potential of looking at the patterns. So if you start to see that someone's limping every time their meds change or every oh, time wow. the humidity is high or even uh, something we don't know, like they, they tend to meet with their grandkids on Saturdays and then Sundays they limp around all day. Mm. These kind of patterns can help people understand what's going on with their health or, or maybe their grandkids were all crawling around exactly. and, that's, and that was like the false positive or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's been really powerful. Um, we've been working with the scientists trying to understand what that could mean for multifamily housing and the real potential of having this technology in 10,000 units could transform the way we think about public health 
organizing neighborhoods. It can even identify things like food deserts yeah. and clusters of, of diseases and things like that. How, so how, would it, how does it do that with some of the food deserts? Well, there's a, uh, it's really interesting. If the, in diabetes, you develop neuropathy, which is a deadening of the nerves in your feet. Mm-hmm. And so your gait starts to uh, uh, show that. And your gait's how you kind of walk. Yeah. Yeah. And so through gait analysis, you can start to see if someone's developing neuropathy from diabetes. Diabetes obviously is often caused by poor nutrition. And so if you see in an inner city neighborhood that there's clusters of diabetes, there's probably a chance that it would also align with a food desert. And other things in the planning of the neighborhood, maybe it's not very walkable. Maybe the sidewalks are are in disrepair. Or there's really no mass transit, and so people aren't encouraged to go out. How do we get to the point where we have such food deserts, we have unwalkable areas, we have all of this stuff, and, and how do we get out of it? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think <laughs> there's a lot of neighborhoods that have been underserved for a long time. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, obviously planners and architects are trying to figure out how these inequities can uh, help people's health but also sort of working in the digital shadow and and that inequity of some kids not having the internet to do their homework and those kind of things is also something that I think architects and planners should be uh, thinking about and uh, having buildings that um, are more conducive to those kind of technologies is important. With all of this technology, thinking about how people live, like their community, what is, and, and, and actually kind of this coming like, time bomb, if you will, maybe pun intended, uh, of, you know, people getting older, the baby boomers that are entering this age where, you know, maybe they're not going to the quote unquote home, but there's independent living. There's all these different types of, you know, the next phase of life, right? You know, they're, they're, they're empty nesters now. They're, um, they're living, their, their living demands are going to change. What is, what are these buildings look like in the future? You know, some of your work is, has been doing that, You've got, you've talked a little bit about gate analysis, you know, how do motion sensors work? How do the fall detection, how does that help smart toilets? Um, you know, sleep sensing automated led spectrum, like what, how does all this come together to kind of create the future of living for folks that are entering that phase of life? Yeah. So what's really interesting is the power of algorithms is not something that I thought a lot about as an architect, <laughs> but as I'm, as I'm learning more and more about how these sensors become networked and the patterns that you see, what's really interesting is to think about the, the strategy, what they call population health, and how you can take data from a huge section of the community and start to make better decisions about how we plan neighborhoods, how we plan transit, how we plan buildings. So one of the anecdotes that we like to tell about population health, or the, the story that we've been promoting is uh, thinking about a senior living in an apartment by themselves, trying to age in place, and we have sleep sensors in the bed that does a ballistic cardiogram of their heart. And so what that would tell you is how many hours of sleep they got, whether it was restless, uh, whether they have sleep apnea, things like that. Um, and then in, they, uh, they, in the bathroom, they may have a smart mirror that can uh, take eye tracking measurements. And so you know their reflexes are off or you know that they may have- well, Talk to me about that, like eye tracking and how, do, how does that mean that? Right, so in, facial recognition uh, now in smart mirrors can start to de- detect slight 
asymmetries in your musculature, hmm. which could be a determining factor. Just like while you're brushing your teeth in the morning. Yeah, right, right. Just as if you were unlocking your phone, right? Wow. It, it can tell you whether you have some kind of cardiovascular problem or something in the muscles of your face that can predict a stroke or some other kind of thing. Does it compare it to like what happened the day before and the day yeah, before? Right, right. Yeah. It's all, it's all, it, it's wow. all sort of AI. It sort of learns what the patterns are and what the trends are, are. And so the other thing that we're looking at then is uh, LED lighting and circadian rhythms. Mm. So the idea that your brain creates uh, cortisone in the morning to help you wake up and melatonin in the evening to help you sleep, that is all filtered by a, a blue wavelength of light. Like what they've they've put the filters in your phones now it, and everything. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And so... Wait, so like... I mean, all these people that have put LED lights in thinking that they're making it more energy efficient have actually probably really messed with our circadian rhythms. <laughs> well, it, the it, actually, the LED lights are so easy to adjust the color spectrum uh -huh. that you could start well, I'm to... I'm saying without the smart lights. Like, oh, there right. could be a lot right, of right, like, right, right. Just LED lights that are just blasting blue yeah. light at me all day. Right. That's so the probably idea why I messed up. is that this, this lack of uh, circadian alignment is seen to be a cause for a lot of the ailments that we associate with aging. So sleepiness, being tired, being disoriented, mm. even depression is sometimes blamed on the idea that you're not getting your circadian rhythms uh, aligned. And so the idea that you could start to dim down lights at night or have them just enough light when you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night that it doesn't sort of wake you up and keep you from entering back into a deep sleep again could be really powerful. The other thing that we've been working on with the uh, geriatric pharmacy department at the KU Med Center is a smart toilet, which is really interesting. And my, my students get a <laughs> kick out of it. But the idea is that the smart toilet would take hydration readings. Huh. So what you would be able to do is tell if someone is dangerously dehydrated. So dehydration is the number one cause of injuries uh, from falls in seniors. So knowing when someone is dehydrated and giving them some alert that there's dehydration going on is, is really powerful. The other thing that that could do is uh, couple the data from the hydration readings to an automated medicine dispenser, which would again be really, really powerful in terms of medication and medication regimens. So the story we've been telling is that someone uh, in a, a a smart home with these kind of sensors, we'd know that they only slept four hours for two nights in a row. They get up and their eye tracking is off. And so we know there's something going on with their reflexes. They're dangerously dehydrated. Um, and then you overlay that with data like it's 29 degrees outside and there's a light drizzle. Uh, that person might have a 99% chance of falling. Mm. So if you had these kind of sensors in, say, 10,000 apartments across a neighborhood, that would be really powerful to pinpoint, like, these 15 people have a 99% chance of falling. You could start to do interventions, like contact their kids or set up an Uber I was just going to ask you, like, in the, in the age of, well, what's happening with my data and privacy yeah. and all of that, yeah, who gets notified? How does that happen? I mean... I think about, you know, at some point, probably in the next 10 years, I'm going to be, I'm the oldest in my family. I'll probably be entering this with my parents and, and, and all of this. Like, how do I, how do I, how do I get notified? How do I do that without invading their privacy? Um, yeah. I other mean, people. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great question. That's continuing to evolve. I think that, uh, 
you know, first and foremost, we want the resident to be able to read the data mm-hmm. and, and feel like they have ownership of the data and can control tell what them, it's telling them. You know, why you know? am I collecting this? What, yeah, is this the, right. what is the benefit? Yeah. Right. And then the other powerful thing is there's a lot of children who wish they could monitor their parents better, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even in countries like China, due to the one child policy, you know, there's there's a whole generation of caregivers that are about to become seniors. Wow, themselves. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And so remote monitoring is huge. It's a it's a huge selling point for senior housing also. Yeah. Um, and so the, the privacy issues are sort of weighed against the, the health and wellness of uh, of senior residents. And, and that's an ongoing ongoing discussion. I, I think more and more, you know, it's easy for me to say that I think people are becoming more comfortable sharing their data. Um, but I think that we're growing up in a generation that you, you just assume that every time you swipe your credit card, mm-hmm. it, it's being collected. And so um, gate analysis and understanding uh, the benefits of that. Um, I think people kind of want though, I, I agree. I, and I, and I think about that myself, but now I'm really like, the more I think about it, I'm like, I'm really waiting for the killer app for my data though. Right. Like what is what are the killer apps that are going to really help me improve? You know, I think some yeah. people look at it like the Fitbits and some of these things are great, but it's like my data is everywhere. Yeah. Every time I do something, data is something. What are the better killer apps other than just telling yeah. me how many steps I have or haven't walked all day? Well, that's what I think is really exciting about this project, because it sort of underlies the idea that the data isn't that powerful taken as an individual. But as a community, when we blend all of our data, it becomes much more powerful. And I think there's something really poetic about that. You know, the idea of the sharing economy um, and that we can we can share each other's data in in for good is kind of a new, a new idea rather right. than trying to, to steal each other's it's data. It's much less us versus them. Like, actually, yeah. this could help us. And, and that's the underpinning philosophy behind population health is that if we look at how a medical... Uh, procedure might affect one person. That's one thing. But if we look at how it's affected the last thousand people that they did, they performed it on, then it's, then there's taking some of the risk out. You're listening to the Future of Living podcast. I'm your host, Blake Miller. My guest on this episode is Joe Calistra, Associate Professor of Architecture, Design, and Planning at the University of Kansas and the founder of In-Situ Design, an award-winning international architecture and urban design firm. We've been discussing his work merging smart living technology into senior living facilities, like floors equipped with accelerometers that perform gate analysis. The next part of our conversation is focused on the role of technology to build more communal spaces and something Joe calls lifelong neighborhoods. So we've talked a little bit about community. We've kind of danced around it a little bit. We've been talking a lot, like really high technology type stuff, but I really want to dive into some of this community stuff because as we're talking about the aging population, like I keep reading about how they're lonely. And like I saw something the other day is like even like, you know, one in like 50% of Americans are considered lonely. And I don't remember what the actual metric it was. Um, or, or if it was a survey, but, you know, I, I see this everywhere. I see, you, you mentioned China, I've seen it in Japan. Um, how do, how do we, how do we confront that? Yeah. We're, we're in an age where we're supposed to be more connected than we've ever been ever, ever, ever. How do we confront exactly. that? How does, how do, how do you as an architect confront that? Talk to me some of the, about some of the community stuff. How important is the role of community in living in the yeah, future it, living? Exactly. I, I think that, uh, a lot of times, we present this technology almost like a silver bullet, but it's certainly no replacement for social connectivity. And if you don't have a social network, you're just going to go downhill really fast. If you don't feel like you're, you're, you're talking to your neighbors and you have some communication with friends. And that's one of the problems with multifamily housing, honestly, is that um, 
you know, the best situation would be for you to be able to sort of engage with people as they walk by your front porch. And that front porch culture has been um, sort of a primary building component for neighborhoods all across the country for, you know, since we started building homes. Mm-hmm. And now that we're sort of doing it with corridors and we've always loaded, been villagers. Right, right. right. And, and in a senior housing complex, it's really easy to become isolated. So we try to build as many community spaces in as we can and force interaction. I know that even in universities, they have sort of what they call, you know, forced uh, forced interaction where scientists and researchers mm-hmm. from different disciplines are supposed to meet each other in the hallway. That sometimes makes for some pretty disorganized buildings, as you can yeah. imagine. But also, you know, they, they often say that some of the best discoveries are made in the hallway just from chance encounters with colleagues. This goes back to some work we were doing in, in Denver. I started practicing in Denver, and about 10 years ago, um, our firm didn't have much work. It was sort of the, during the downturn. And one of the things we did was create a community group to come together and develop their own project. So what they did was these were people that had no development experience, no architecture experience. Just people that lived in the community? Just people that lived in a community that felt like was starting to be gentrified and they were concerned about the transition the community was taking. So we gathered 23 neighbors together and they all put their homes up for collateral in order to close on a construction loan. So that's really powerful because these 23 neighbors having the ability to, or the the faith in their community and build. So they just bought up a, they bought up a, a small lot and they, they really believed that investing in their community was like investing in themselves. And just the process of, of acquiring the land, hiring professionals, designing the project, getting its construction loan, that's all seen as components of larger community building. One of the things we're trying to do now, though, is take that idea, which, again, I think is sort of like the sharing economy. Yeah, how do you outsource that? Yeah, how do you t- open source that? Exactly. Taking all of our resources and bringing it together is a really powerful notion. So one of the things we've been looking at here in Kansas City um, is there's a new central city economic development tax. It's a one-eighth cent sales tax across the entire city, and that investment is supposed to happen in underserved neighborhoods. Uh Well, you can imagine what happens is a lot of outside developers come in and want to develop inside these neighborhoods. What we're trying to do is gain some uh, ability to empower the neighbors themselves to put together some development groups at a very low cost. So one of the situations we have right now is... Well, I mean, it, it... Man, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You go. I, th- that spurred so many thoughts. Go. Well, I, I think it could be a, a national model for community yeah. building because not only has the entire city come together and passed an initiative to say we will tax, uh, we will tax ourselves, we will tax tourists, and we will reinvest in our most uh, underserved neighborhoods. The problem is that a lot of the residents in those neighborhoods don't really have the capacity to utilize that money and to know how to do that. And so what the great opportunity for a university is to step in and say, here's how you can mobilize, here is how you can organize yourselves and have a place at the table where typically it would only be sort of a larger developer that would be able to have those resources. As a university, we're a nonprofit, and so we're supposed to come into communities and help people do that. It's really exciting. The potential could be great. And I think it could be a model because what would happen is the way we're working out the performance right now is that if the project was successful, you could roll over the profits Uh, and do these over and over again. When I interrupted you, I was that was what I was gonna say. I was like, you got people that were that 
are in that community that could reinvest in their own community that could end up being a revenue stream for them. Right. Right. That keeps them in their community. And it's, it's as the community grows and gets better. That's, I mean, it makes them entrepreneurs in and of itself. The win-win situation we had with these development models in Denver was that residents would often roll over their profits to a second project, right? So the, the potential here is that you could start to gain more and more people being involved. Just as an example, the way we have it figured out right now is if we could somehow pull together 20 or 30 residents that had the capacity to invest $4,000 in a real estate development, in a year and a half, they would get $5,000 back. So that's like entry-level real estate development, well, being able to do that in your community. And it's win-win because not only are you reaping the profit of a project that is that is uh, being developed, but your property values are also going up. Yeah. And unlike gentrification, where all the profit leaves the neighborhood, all the profit would stay within a few blocks. And so that's sort of what is so exciting about this, is that it really takes this idea that only those affected by an environment should have any right to its determination. Yeah. So the residents are empowered to actually take control of this. This me, I mean, how this dovetails beautifully into what I wanted to ask you about in terms of affordable housing and some of these things. Like, it seems like all of this is so interconnected that, I mean, it seems like a way out of affordable housing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, again, if you're a neighbor who only has, um, and again, granted, $4,000 might be someone's life savings. Sure. Right. So putting $4,000 into a project and having a group of neighbors wanting this project to succeed also allows that neighborhood to decide who it's going to be marketed to. Uh-huh. So instead of a project where you're trying to get $800, $900 in rent a month, you could sort of go backwards from the area median income and then calculate what would a mortgage payment for someone who lives in the neighborhood, who we want to keep in the neighborhood, have yeah. to pay? And then you could go backwards and design the building to meet those requirements. So it, you could build the affordability into it. That's incredible. So, like, how does all of this come together? And I'm and I'm going to sound ignorant, kind of purposely, but like, you know, people think like, oh, people that live in affordable housing or older folks—they're not tech savvy, they're not these things or or whatever. How are we going to do all of this? Like, sounds like an amazing future. How are we going to do all this when maybe those views are still out there? Maybe they're true. Maybe they're not. But how do we get people better connected? How do we get them more included right. so that this this future, it sounds awesome, can come to fruition? We've been trying to promote what we call a lifelong neighborhood. Okay. So a neighborhood where you could thrive at all ages of life. And so if you think about the components of that, you have great parks, great schools, mass transit, uh, walkable streets. Mm-hmm. Um, a thriving commercial district and historic homes in neighborhoods. Um, all walkable? All, all walkable. Yeah. And, and it's quite a departure right. from the suburban development that you see over the last 50 years where people tried to get out of the dirty, right. dirty city. Um, I think there's a whole generation of people that sort of <laughs> don't want to be anywhere near the sort of uh, generic, uh, boring suburbia. Right. They want to be downtown where things are happening. You're locked away in a neighborhood where you have to drive to get to the communities or square or whatever. Diversity and and all the things that you have in in these neighborhoods. The problem, of course, is schools. You know, I I have a lot of friends who live in uh, 
uh, urban neighborhoods because of the of the hustle and bustle mm-hmm. until they have kids and then they move out to where the schools are better. That's a that's something that we have to address really. really and that quickly. ends up they they start clustering then, right? Yeah, you right. know, you've got a bunch of young families then all in the same area right around those schools because that's that's where they want to go. Right. But then you're not intermixed with older folks. You're not intermixed with that diversity of all the different types of people in that lifelong neighborhood you're kind of talking about. Right. And, and I think a, a lifelong neighborhood is another way of of saying an intergenerational neighborhood, yeah. right? I mean, you have uh, uh, community centers that could have daycare and senior care at the same time. You could have kids learning how to drive, but delivering meals on wheels to seniors, things like that. There's all there's all kind of synergies sure. that you can start to play those into. Those seniors could be helping to care for those kids while exactly. they're in, like... Exactly. And, and that community, which keeps them young, which keeps them right. connected. It, it gets and, back to that social connectivity yeah. of having a support network that. How can you be lonely yeah, if you're right. constantly interacting? Or, you know, to check on someone, if you walk past their house every day and they're on the front porch and then there's three days in a row where they're not on the front yeah. porch, you might even knock on the door and say, hey, how's Mrs. Miller doing? You know? Yeah. All right, Joe, we're running out of time. This has been such an amazing conversation. Like so many things to unpack. I feel like we could have like a like a four part series here. But uh, we love to end every episode uh, with some lightning round questions. Just really quick snap reactions, 60 seconds or less. What I want to know is like as an architect, what are some of the biggest challenges in designing buildings for the future? Um, and then with that, what do you think was one of the biggest opportunities? Oh, I think uh, sustainability has transformed the way we think about cities and buildings. And, and it gets back to the neighborhood and the walkability of a neighborhood. If you're going to drive 25 minutes and commute every morning to uh, your house in a bedroom community, it's not going to be very sustainable. Mm-hmm. So trying to understand how carbon offsetting works and the utility companies and how sort of this regulated society can bring us back to a more sustainable architecture and a more sustainable way of, of living is what's really exciting. I think for students going into the industry right now, it's all about sustainability. Is there a particular business or service that you believe will be obsolete in the next 10 years? You know, we've seen a huge transition, like who's the next blockbuster? <laughs> I, I hope it's franchise restaurants. Really? They're, they're just so, you know, you get the, having just done a road trip across the country. Can we keep country, Chipotle? Chipotle, maybe we could keep. <laughs> we could keep. But I, I taught in Dubai for two years. That's amazing. And when I was in Dubai, you know, you had the exact same restaurants as you have here. Yeah. You know, it, it was a big deal to go to uh, to Burger King at the Dubai Mall. All right. So technology is changing like crazy. Like, what's going to be one of the it devices or technologies in the next ten years? You were talking about like accelerometers or like some of these basic ones. What's 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 the future like? You know, we're thinking really hard about how to organize cities around autonomous driving. Mm. That's going to change everything from the sidewalk to parking garages. Every building downtown has five, six levels of parking in it across the country. And so when that space opens up, when a car can go park itself, that's going to be uh incredible how we're going to have to rethink that and and that happened that's starting to happen now even where new codes are requiring that parking garages in denver right yeah where parking garages be high enough to be converted to retail space in the future what platform do you think is going to reign in the future like voice ar vr i think ar is pretty powerful yeah Uh, even in architecture we're starting to look at how you can start to model buildings and spaces um and have all the equipment in there, but still sort of feel like you're in the space. One of the one of the things we've been looking at is how AR can be used in 
uh, doing really high-tech, really complicated spaces, like some of the new surgical suites now, they have $4 million worth of equipment in there. They have a CAT scan, MRI, robotic arms that actually do the surgery, monitors so that you can sort of talk to consultants across the world. Those kind of spaces, those surgical suites, are really important to get right the first time. And so mocking them up uh, with virtual reality or augmented reality is really powerful for a chief surgeon to sort of pinpoint place where all the equipment needs to be. And I can imagine that sort of uh, being applicable to a lot of different industries. For investors and builders looking to modernize existing properties with smart living tech, where do you think that they should start? You know, I think uh, the construction industry has really changed very little in the last 60 years. I mean, the last real transformative invention for construction was probably power tools. Wow. <laughs> so thinking about how much buildings uh, and the construction industry needs to change is something that's really exciting. Um, I think that prefabrication is probably um, key to that because in prefabrication, you not only have the, uh, the controlled conditions of a warehouse, so those are the places where you could embed sensors and the kind of technology that you need, but it also lends a certain precision to a building. And so earlier we talked about uh, an apartment unit being able to collect biometric data. If that's built on site by guys with two by fours out of their pickup truck, it's not gonna be very precise. We're talking about the kind of precision that uh, sort of is analogous to a medical device. So if you start to think of the housing unit as a medical device, as something that actually takes care of you, then of course you <laughs> want it built in a warehouse where there are dust control conditions, yeah. temperature conditions, where the wood isn't going to warp, where the uh, uh, waterproofing is fastened exact to specifications. Those kind of advances, um, I think, are coming. Uh, it's just a, a matter of sort of getting the, the labor costs aligned with the uh, demand but that's an exciting, that's an exciting uh, thing to think about right now. So last question before you're off the hot seat. Uh, if you had to describe the smart living experience in just one word, what do you think that would be? Connected. Connected. Connected socially and technologically. Mm -hmm. I love it. Joe, this has been such a great chat. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come in and chat with us. Thanks for having me, Blake. Thank you again to Joe Kalistra for joining me on the Future of Living podcast. You can hear more from this and other conversations at futureoflivingpodcast.com. If you like this conversation or the podcast in general, a good rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to find your podcast definitely helps us out. It also helps other people find us. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening, liking, and sharing. We'll be back next week.